Again, it's so good to be here with you guys. Um, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, as an act of worship, if we can open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we'll read verses 45 through 52. I'll be reading from the ESV, so if you want to flip there on your apps, uh, turn to the ESV version. And if you don't have your Bible or your apps, uh, the passage is going to be uh, up on the screen for us to follow along. So last week, uh, we saw Jesus out of a, a, a deep-seated compassion, a miraculously feed 5,000 men. Uh, there were many more women and children that were accounted for, so the, the rough estimate is probably around 10 to 12,000 individuals uh, that Jesus fed with five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. Uh, demonstrating uh, that he is the greater Moses uh, that's going to lead the people of Israel and, and us out of a greater exodus. Um, it's not only physical enslavement uh, that the people needed rescue from, but it was spiritual enslavement. The very thing that separates from us from God is sin. And so Jesus, who he calls himself the bread of life, is given for us on that cross to pay in full the penalty of our sins, to reconcile us with God. And this is the greater exodus that Jesus demonstrates in this act of feeding 10 to 12,000 uh, individuals. But the fact is, people didn't understand this act. They just didn't get it. Uh, they thought Jesus was going to be a warrior king, a political figure who's going to uh, free them from Roman occupation and establish uh, national independence, a theocratic nation where they themselves can have autonomy. Uh, to not have a foreign power over them. And so this was the idea that they had in mind for the Messiah, which the Old Testament talks about. He's going to come and give us uh, political freedom and establish our indep independent nation. But that is not who Jesus Christ is, and that's not what he came for, to just free his people from uh, Roman occupation. But again, it's to free them from the thing, that's very uh, the very thing that's plaguing our lives and this world, which is sin and brokenness, a life that is without God. So they didn't get it. And unfortunately, it wasn't just the crowds that didn't get it. Jesus' own disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand who he was, why he came, what his mission was. And, and this is a very sad, actually, passage when we take a look at it. Uh, so let's give our full attention to read this for us. Again, Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. Amen. It's such an interesting passage um, ends in a very dark way. Right? There's nothing worse than when someone doesn't understand you or get you, right? where there's suspicion and insecurity in a relationship. No one wants to be in a relationship like that. Uh, it's difficult when, uh, when you can't trust the people around you, but it's also hard 
when you're surrounded with people that don't trust you either. Either way, it's hard. Either way, it's hard. And especially when it comes from people that are close to you. So when, when Jane, my wife, doesn't get me or understand me or misunderstands me, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. But that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. Uh, the hand-selected disciples of Jesus Christ, their hearts are hardened towards him. Uh, how are we to make sense of this very difficult passage? I want us to take a look at three major elements in our passage today. The first thing is we want to see a great struggle. Secondly, we want to see a great reveal. And lastly, we want to see a gracious Savior. Uh, So the first is a great struggle. Secondly, a great reveal. And lastly, a gracious Savior. So first, a great struggle. Now, there are two actually great struggles in our passage today. Uh, So Jesus, with a sense of urgency, sends his disciples off first to the other side of the Sea of Galilee so that he can dismiss the crowds. Now, there is a hurriedness, uh, an urgency here for Jesus to send his disciples away. Like I mentioned, uh, the people wanted to make Jesus king right there on the spot. Man, this guy can, 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 make, can feed tens, uh, 10,000 individuals. Let's make him king on the spot. This is a Messiah who's going to free us from Rome. Let's put a crown on him right now. Now, again... Uh, They misunderstood this act. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing here. Uh, Jesus is going to free them from sin and not just from Roman occupation. And so not wanting to feel the excitement by allowing the disciples to linger around, he dismisses them so that he can dismiss the crowds. And then he retreats to the hillside to pray. And this is the first struggle that we see. Jesus is the one who is struggling here. He actually goes to the mountain, he retreats, he withdraws himself to go and pray. Uh, Now, if you think about it, Jesus is God. Why does he have to do this? Uh, There are three instances in the Gospel of Mark where we see this act of Jesus withdrawing, retreating to go and pray. And oftentimes, it's to a desolate place, a desolate place. So why does Jesus do this? The first time we see Jesus do this is actually in the first chapter of Mark, where Jesus, after a series of miraculous healings, of showing great compassion, that there's just so much excitement around Jesus that he actually withdraws, right? He withdraws himself to go and pray. The third occasion, this is the second occasion, the third occasion is actually in Mark 14, where in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter, James, and John with him to pray, but even with those three, he actually separates himself to go and pray to his heavenly Father. Right before he's betrayed and handed over to be executed on the cross, we see Jesus again withdrawing himself, separating himself to pray. So why does Jesus do this? What is he praying about? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Jesus constantly go away and pray to his heavenly father when he is God himself? Here we see clearly the humanity of Jesus. See, Jesus, like you and me, was susceptible to temptation. Uh, Before Jesus began his ministry, he went into the wilderness, again being alone, and he was tempted and tried by Satan uh, with three different temptations. The first one was, hey, turn these stones into bread. Jesus was hungry. He was fasting. The second one, Satan told him, hey, go to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and throw yourself down. And, 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 and God will send down his angels to, to save you. And the last temptation was Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world if he just bowed down. 
If you, just bow down to, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Now, this last temptation was the most alluring one out of all three. Why? Why was this the most alluring one? Because Jesus, actually, God actually promised, his heavenly father promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world. But what was the pathway in him coming into inheritance of that kingdom? That pathway was to the cross. Now, when Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world, if he just simply bows down, what does he bypass? What can Jesus bypass if he actually did that? Excruciating pain, humiliation, bearing the wrath of God. This was an enticing temptation for Jesus to bypass the cross, to come into his inheritance of the kingdoms of the world that, that the Father actually promised him. See, we see, we see this, this, this kind of struggle that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? We hear this in his prayer. God, if you can remove this cup from me, please. If there is another way for me to, to obey you, to, uh, to uh, pay the penalty of sin, if there's any other way, please give me that way. With uh, drops of sweat of blood, like he's sweating, drops of blood, right, because of the torment that he's experiencing, thinking about bearing the wrath of his heavenly father, he says, please give me another way. But ultimately, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. This was very difficult for Jesus, the idea, the perfect son, to bear the full weight of God's wrath and judgment. This temptation was real for Jesus at all, three times, where he withdraws himself to pray. People wanted to make him king right there on the spot. And what that meant for him is he did not have to go to the cross to become king of king and lord of lords. The way that God had laid out the path for him, he can bypass that if he accepts that crown. And so what we see Jesus doing here is experiencing that great struggle, that great temptation to take an alternative path, an alternative route to coming into inheritance of the kingdoms. This was a real struggle for Jesus. And this is the first great struggle that we see in our passage. See, the truth is, Jesus' great struggle is our great struggle. Jesus was faced with alternative options, counter, that ran counter to God's will. And this, in essence, is what temptation is, an option that runs counter to the will of God in our lives. And the fact is, we all too often forget that we are susceptible to temptation at every turn of our lives. Every single day of our lives, we are being tempted by the evil one. But we forget this truth all too often. And the question is, are we going to trust in God or are we going to trust in ourselves? Are we going to believe that God knows better or are we going to believe that we know better than God? When it comes to sex and pleasure, do we trust in God's design for sex and pleasure, being in the context of a covenant marriage, or are we going to satisfy ourselves and just take matters into our own hands for a lesser pleasure, for lesser gratification, for instant gratification? How about when it comes to our careers and academics? Do we trust in God's provision for our future that makes us work and study in a way that honors him and that's done with integrity? Or are we looking for the quick 
quickest way to success, the easiest, the fastest route to succeed, to get promoted, to get that A, even if it means for us to be dishonest, to cheat others, to trample over others. How about with our families? Do we trust in God for our children? Or do we try and rule and lord over them, controlling everything that they're trying to do to make sure that they turn out the way that we want them to turn out? The truth is, we're, we're faced with temptations every single day of our lives. And these temptations are heightened in times of desperation and extended periods of waiting, aren't they? When there is no progress, when there is no, we're, just, we're just waiting for God to answer our prayers for the things that we want, right? It is in these moments where our confidence in God weakens. And we hear the, the all-too-familiar voice of Satan did God really say? Did he really say? Is, is, is your God really that good? Does he even know what you're going through? Is he able to help you? How come he's not, he, how come he's not solving your problems? How come he's not providing relief? How come he's not providing comfort? Is God really good? And our confidence starts to waver. See, what Jesus does in his moment of struggle is, is he's modeling for us what we should do. He spends time with his father, relying upon him, asking him for help. Jesus needed help to stay on the path that God, his father, has set before him. And in the midst of temptation, he withdraws himself and he cries out to God. Now think about this. As a son of God needs his father to help him to obey his will, how much more? Do we as broken, dysfunctional sinners? So this is the first great struggle that we see. And while Jesus is dealing with his struggle, the disciples are faced with their own struggle. Verse 47 through 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. So Jesus finished his time of prayer. He dealt with his own struggles. Now he sees, and he's looking out on the sea, and he sees his disciples struggling. All right, this is the second time that the disciples are having a hard time at the Sea of Galilee. The first time was a great storm where they thought that their lives were in danger, and Jesus was underneath the boat sleeping. Right? And we have to remember that these disciples, some of them were fishermen. They're not incompetent in the water. Uh, they knew what they were doing, and they were probably familiar with the sea, right? This was, uh, uh, this was common, that there were storms like these. So this was nothing of a surprise, and these weren't incompetent uh, people in the water. So we know that this was a big deal, right, when they couldn't make any, like, headway uh, through, uh, the, to their de- destination, right? The first time we see uh, them struggling in the storm, Jesus just commanded, right, commanded the Uh, to the wind and the sea, and and just calm, right? Calm, the storm subsided, right? The word here that we see uh, uh, for painfully, it it was tormenting them, right? In the Greek, it was tormenting them. They were struggling tremendously here and trying to get to the other side. But what what Mark is trying to show us and demonstrate for us here is that whenever Jesus is away from his disciples, that is when the disciples struggle the most. When Jesus' presence is absent from them or even appears to be absent, 
They're struggling. They're having a difficult time. Now, we, we, we see this pattern constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark, where when Jesus is not around, the dis, dis, disciples are struggling. Right? But it's not fair. Why is this not fair? Because Jesus is the one who told them to go out. Right? Jesus is the one to tell them to go to the other side alone. Right? And the disciples were obeying Jesus. The disciples didn't do anything wrong here. They obeyed Jesus and they find them, they, they're finding themselves in this great torment by the wind. I see, there's this false expectation in Christianity is that if I obey Jesus, then my life will be easier and more comfortable in a worldly sense. Right? So for so, so many of us, uh, our crisis of faith stems from this false notion. Right? When we look at God's word, it actually promises the quite opposite. We are guaranteed opposition and pushback from this world. If we obey Jesus, if we're pursuing after him, if we're trying to be his disciple, we're actually going to face persecution and opposition at every turn. Why is this? Why does Jesus sometimes lead us to face trials? Why does obedience lead us to even more difficult circumstances? One reason is this, it's just to test us is to test our faith. We have to remember his primary goal for our lives isn't earthly comfort, but holy completion. Let me say that one more time. His primary goal for our lives isn't earthly comfort. His goal for us is holy completion. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason why we are facing many different types of trials and and difficulties and harsh circumstances is because God is wanting to complete our faith, to perfect our faith. See, testing and trials have a purpose in strengthening and refining our faith in God. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's painful. But God is doing something through that pain. And oftentimes, it's in moments of suffering and pain and disappointment where we get a clear picture of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. But their physical distress is only part of their struggle. Their physical distress is actually more symptomatic of their spiritual distress, as we will see later. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's setting the stage for his disciples in a most dramatic way. And the second thing that we'll see is, is a great reveal. Right, the fourth watch is around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so he decides to meet them out by the sea. And not by taking out a boat, but he decides to walk on water. And we see a very interesting detail here that if we just read it really quickly, we just would not really think much of it. Oh, this, this part, when I read it, I was like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, the last part of verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Why, why is this included in this passage? Why would, why would the Gospel of Mark include this detail? He meant to pass by them, but yet he met them there. See, commentators connect this idea of passing by it should sound a little bit familiar to the, uh, to the Old Testament in ways that God would reveal himself to his different prophets and to his different leaders. 
right? We see Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? In the cleft of, and, and God's glory passing by, right? God's glory passing by. And Elijah at Mount Horeb, we see again God passing by Elijah, right? Giving him a glimpse, a little hint of his presence, right? Because his glory was too big and too weighty for us to actually behold, for these people to behold. So Moses had to hide in the cleft of a rock and God had to just simply pass by, whether it's like a wind or, or, or something that, that we could just feel but we can't really behold. But the greatest, greatest explanation of what's happening here is actually in Job chapter 9, verses 8 and verses 11. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Right? This is exactly what Mark was trying to capture. So what is Mark trying to say? Because it is only God who has sovereign control over the seas that he can trample over them. Right? Verse 49, but when he, they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was gross. They thought it was a ghost and cried out. Jesus here is demonstrating very clearly who he is. He is showing his true colors here. See, unlike the Old Testament where God would have to simply pass by unseen because his glory was too much to behold, the glory of God in Jesus Christ here is made accessible, tangible, to be seen. His glory, which was inaccessible, now becomes accessible in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the amazing grace of God that is different than the Old Testament. What is now unseen in the Old Testament now is tangibly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is saying, I am God. I am the one who is, has sovereign control over the stormy waves, so much so that I can trample over them. See, throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus is trying to, he's trying to veil his true identity from the masses. But here, he's giving an exclusive reveal to his disciples of his true nature, of who he really is by treading on the stormy waves. And the disciples, very appropriately, are terrified. They're scared out of their mind because this was a very superstitious culture and there, were, there was uh, fables and stories of ghosts in the seas. And so they were terrified. When they saw Jesus, they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost, right? And the ghost was often associated with chaos. And so we can't blame them for being afraid. And Jesus, seeing their terror and wanting to put them at ease, speaks to them. Verse 50, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Is some very powerful words. Take heart. And in the Greek, it is I, is ego eimi, which simply translates to I am. God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. Moses said, who, what's your name? Give me a name to tell the people of Israel whom you want to rescue. Give me a name. And God says, I am who I am. Here, Jesus says those very same words, I am, and this is a great reveal. I am God. I am, I, I, I am before time. I am eternal. 
Jesus is showing himself to be sovereign over everything and over the storm. He reassures his disciples of who he is. Do not fear, I am God. See, faced with the struggle against the storm, the disciples have come to, to an end of themselves. They have come to their own, an end to their own self, uh, self-sufficiency. They are incapable of saving themselves. And Jesus comes, comes to them, revealing to them, I am who I am. That he is completely self-sufficient, dependent on nothing, not confined or limited by nature. Rather, he is infinite. He is sovereign and in complete control. He is above nature. He's above our circumstances and situation, unaffected by anything. Can you imagine this, this scene where the waves are just crashing all over them and Jesus is calmly standing over it? See, uh, my wife and I, we, we've have, we have three children, and, and for the most part, uh, we've had uh, pretty smooth uh, deliveries, right, and, and the whole labor process. At least that's my perspective, right? <laughs> uh, if Jane was here, she'd probably roll her eyes and give me the death stare. Um, you know, with our first child, we, we decided to enroll in, in labor class. Uh, we actually stayed for 10 minutes and just skipped. Uh, I don't know why we did this. We were maybe tired and we were hungry. So actually, we didn't stay for the entire time. And so we went into, um, you know, the, the delivery f- with our, our first son, Deacon, pretty blind. We didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I, I didn't know. I looked up some YouTube videos, but uh, still, I was very um, going in blind. But what I found myself doing was um, just looking at the nurses and seeing what they did seeing their facial expressions, seeing how they behaved and, and acted, and, and I'll just kind of take my cues from them. If they're calm, then I'm calm, right? But if they panicked, then I panicked, because I know then that something is really wrong, because these are trained medical professionals. Um, there was a period of like 10 to 15 minutes where the nurses were panicking. Uh, they couldn't find Deacon's heartbeat, or the heart rate was slowing down. It's been such a long time. It's kind of blurry. It was one of those two. And so they were, they were just panicking. They were like running all over the place. They were flipping Jane like back and forth like a pancake, just constantly uh, trying to figure out if that's going to help them get the heart rate back to normal. But during this time, I was in such a panic. I had no idea what was happening. And I was trying to ask them questions, but they were trying to just help Jane out and the baby out. But after a while, they, they were able to find and, and get the heartbeat, uh, regulate the heartbeat. I think the cord maybe have, uh, was wrapped around the neck or something like that, so they're trying to adjust Jane. But, you know, if they're calm, then I'm calm. If they panic, then I panic. That's just normal. The same, same thing happens when you're, when you're flying, uh, flying on an airplane, right? Because we trust ourselves to the professionals. We take our cues from them. While the disciples are tormented and struggling by the sea, they look out and they see Jesus calmly just riding the waves. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing that surprises Jesus. There's nothing that catches him off guard. He doesn't panic. He has full knowledge and awareness of what you're going through in your life. He's not in the dark. He knows what's happening in this world as well. Even the very things that we try to keep hidden from others, Jesus Christ knows intimately. He knows your internal struggles of depression. He knows your anxiety. He knows your insecurity. He knows your constant restlessness. He knows your addictions, your discomforts, your deepest longings and desires. He knows all the things that you're praying for, you're hoping for, all the things that you want. 
He knows it all completely. So either he knows us and he just doesn't care, or there's a divine purpose, a sovereign purpose of why he's allowing us to experience these things. Why he's not answering that prayer. Why he's asking us to constantly wait. God knows absolutely what's going on in our lives, and he is doing something. See, the promise for those that are children of God is that all things, everything, he's working for the good of those that love him. Good. I know it's hard, because when you're in the thick of it, it's hard. But our faith, scripture, the sovereignty of God, of Christ, tells us that he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in your life. There's purpose, there's a design for our struggles and our pains. And we are called to believe and rely upon his wisdom and his sovereignty. He's not, he's not affected by that storm. God wants to remind us this morning that he is Lord, even over our struggles. Jesus revealed this as he walked over the stormy waves. How did the disciples respond? to this great revelation, to this great reveal. They worshiped him. They adored him. They, they, they built up an altar right on that boat, right? Quite the opposite. Can't be any further from that. And so we'll look at, lastly, we'll look at the gracious Savior. Verse 51 and verse 52. And he got, a, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. After this great reveal, they didn't get it. They were still caught up with the loaves of bread. They didn't understand what Jesus did. What just happened? They didn't understand. See, they were impressed with Jesus, but they couldn't connect the dots. They failed to see that Jesus was God. All, all the evidence was, was there. Not only here, but in previous passages, Jesus demonstrated very clearly, I am God. Look at what I can do. They failed to see Jesus as God. There was no category in their, in their minds for this type of person. He's so human, but he's able to do these godly things. They had no category in their minds, so their hearts were hardened. The last time we see hardened hearts were from who? The Pharisees. Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, and their hearts were hardened toward Jesus, meaning that they rejected him. That's what it means for a hardened, that's what it means for us to have a hardened heart. They rejected Jesus. Here now we see the disciples, the very one Jesus hand-selected, reject him. What's going on here? How is Jesus going to handle and respond to this? Right? A hardened heart is one that is unresponsive to the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And this is, this, this is designated for those that are the, the greatest opponents of Jesus. But yet we see dis, the disciples having a hardened heart. They reject him and they fail to embrace him. See, many of us, we experience dullness and numbness in our hearts towards him. Right? We've struggled to find joy in the gospel. When we read the Bible, it's just cold. It's just distant. There's, it just does nothing. So we struggle with callous, callousness, but hardened hearts is a completely different thing. See, whether you have a hardened heart today, because there, there are probably people here that have not accepted Christ. So whether you're, you have a hardened heart 
or if you have a callous heart, I want to notice something about Jesus Christ here. What does he do? Jesus knows his disciples struggle, right? He knows that they don't understand. But what does Jesus still do? He still gets in. Right? If I was Jesus, I was like, you figure it out. You, you find your own way to the other side of the sea. If I knew, right, and this is just my sinfulness, I'll let them just struggle the entire way. You don't get it? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you just go across the sea, just struggling the entire way. Right? I do this to my kids all the time. Right? If you, you don't want to listen to me, okay, go ahead and try. Right? <laughs> Oftentimes they, they cry because they get hurt. Right? But that's my impatience. I'm not gracious like Christ. Christ still gets into the boat. He still gets in. Right? You still don't get it? You, you don't understand who I am? I, I've, I've given you all the evidence possible and you still don't get it. But he still gets into the boat. And, he, and the winds die down. See, the disciples weren't lacking evidence. They physically experienced Jesus, the Son of God. What was missing them? Why was it so difficult for them to believe? Why the hardened hearts? Please listen very carefully. Evidence is good. Apologetics, right, defending our faith is good. But no amount of evidence, no amount of knowledge can earn us salvation. Right? There are biblical scholars that dedicate themselves to study scripture their entire lives, PhDs, but yet still they reject Jesus. They fail to embrace him. The question is, if the disciples can't get it, how is anyone else going to get it? And how do the disciples actually eventually get it, even though their hearts are hardened? How does one become a Christian? The disciples struggle so much. How can then I be saved? If it's not knowledge, if it's not evidence, how can then one come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is the question. The gospel truth is you can't. You just can't. You can't save yourself. You can't think hard enough. You can't study hard enough. You can't do enough to be saved. Salvation belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. It is only his to give freely by grace. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. I will sprinkle clean, uh, clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How much do we do here? How much what, what, what hand do I play here? It's it's all. It's all God. It's all Christ. This is extremely humbling. It is the work of Jesus Christ to give us a new heart, a flesh. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. Not only that, he will put a spirit in us and he will allow us to walk in obedience and righteousness. The disciples had a gracious Savior who was faithful in the midst of their disbelief, who still got into the boat when they were unfaithful. This is the gospel. 
This is the amazing grace of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Even in great unbelief, he comes pursuing us. Yet, while we were still sinning, he died on the cross for us. He replaced their heart of stone and gave them a heart of flesh. He did not give up on his own disciples that didn't believe in him. See, salvation is a gracious gift given to us by a gracious Savior. Jesus Christ, who is Lord over the storm, who walks on the violent waves, on the cross, will subject himself to the storm. The waves will actually consume him on that cross. The, wave, the waves of God's judgment and his wrath will consume him. He will be the one tormented and humiliated on the cross. He will bear the weight, full weight of condemnation for sinners like you and me. And he will, he will triumph over that storm, rising again after three days. He will defeat sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. And he'll prove himself to be a sufficient savior who can reign over, who will, and who does right now reign over our lives. For those that have yet to experience this gracious savior, I want to invite you to believe. I want to invite you to trust in him. How you become a Christian is simply by confessing your sins and confessing a need for a savior and placing your trust in him. That's all. He's done all the work for us. He's, he's, he's done all the heavy lifting. All we need to do is just believe. But for those that have placed their faith in Christ today, let's be reminded that he conquered the storm. His presence is always with us. He knows full and well what we're going through. He knows what we're struggling with. Let's not be afraid. And let's believe again in Jesus Christ, who is sovereign and in full control of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you did not give up on us, that you came pursuing us, relentlessly loving us, while yet we were still in rebellion and, and in defiance and, and worshiping other gods. You came down. You subjected yourself to, to become a part of creation. You struggled, but never fell into sin. You lived the perfect life that we needed to live, and you died the death that we deserve to die. And now you are sovereign over our lives. You know everything that we're experiencing. You know everything that we're struggling with. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters now who are in the midst of a storm, whether it's struggle in marriage, whether it's struggle at work, school, relationships, sin, addictions, whatever it may be, God, you are with us. You are in the boat with us. And you're asking us to not be afraid and to believe in you. God, I thank you that you're working in our lives, that you're perfecting us, that you're trying to complete us and refine our faith. We need your help. Help us, Lord, to see that you are Lord over the storm. Help us to see that you are in full control of our lives. And help us, Lord, to know you better, to believe in you, to trust in you, and to worship you, and to follow you. God, we need your help. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you love us. Now, as we respond to worship, 
May you receive all the praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.